Thank you, uh, Kenneth, for reading God's Word for us. Good afternoon, everybody. We are doing a series of studies from the uh, collection of Psalms, and today we will be looking at Psalm 46. So if you have your Bibles with you, or if you're looking at, uh, uh, at it from your phones, I encourage you to keep it open there because we would like to have you memorize most parts of Psalm 46 by the time the sermon ends. Okay, so how is it going to end? What do I mean by that? At some point in our lives, you and I must have speculated how the world is going to end. So I remember when I was in primary school age, it was the late 70s, and you remember the late 70s, it was still the Cold War era. And uh, it made me imagine that either the USSR or the US would uh, trigger a nuke attack against the other, and that's how the world is going to end. Now, Hollywood knew that we have an interest in doomsday scenarios, and so made a lot of money scaring us with even many more possibilities uh, of how the world is going to end. And so if you are a movie buff, you probably may have guessed which movie this is. A massive asteroid uh, hitting the planet. Which movie is that? How about uh, aliens invading us? How about zombies killing humans? Or a worldwide garbage pollution hitting the planet or a worldwide uh, air pollution? How about a contagion originating from Africa? Or Skynet using AIs to obliterate mankind? And in recent years, Hollywood has shifted from all these possible scenarios to now climate change. A massive natural disaster is going to end the world. There's just so many possible doomsday plots. But you know, we are not the only ones who speculated how the world is going to end. The ancient world did think about doomsday. It uh, scared them as ours scared us. The only difference is that they didn't pay a lot of money to be scared like we did. Instead, they made something better out of their doomsday fear. And so to prove my point, we will read Psalm 46 together. So slide comes up. Ready? One, two, three. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The women? Together, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Then the men. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Together. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So how is it going to end? 
The psalmist imagined not climate change, not contagion, but uncreation or decreation. It's the reversal of creation. So if you remember, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that when God created the world, the earth was initially formless. It was void. It was dark. And before God commanded uh, dry land uh, to appear, He commanded that the waters above and that the waters below to be separated by what He calls the skies. And so He made the seas then, followed by dry land. And so what you see in verses 2 to 3 is the undoing of creation. It is like reverse playing the video of creation. And the psalmist uses a natural disaster, doomsday scenario, the worst possible. And how does he describe it? With the earth giving way, like multiple massive sinkholes collapsing into the waters, and of mountains quaking and sliding into the sea. Isn't that scaring the daylights out of us? Well, it does to me, especially if I imagine it occurring in the dark of the night, triggered by a strong tectonic earthquake, side by side with the most powerful storm that the world has ever seen. So if you've been following the news, it would be like Typhoon Hagibis, partnering with an earthquake, but far worse. And so the imagery of mountains and the roaring seas is important here. Why? Because unlike some of us who love the seas and the beach, I was told that Jewish folk of old, they are people who are not very fond of the seas. Why? Because they are not seafaring people. And so to them, the seas represent chaos, danger, and death. And then on the other hand, the mountains represent solid, immovable strength. So mountains, they protect you from the storm. Mountains, they protect you from the enemies. But when doomsday arrives, an imaginable horror happens. What happens? The immovable strength melts. The mountains melt. And chaos swallows it up. And so you ask, why does a psalmist suggest a morbid how is it going to end for us? Well, it's because he is making good, or rather making something good, out of our doomsday phobia, if we have one, that is. And what does he say? He says this, that though the earth gives way, that though the mountains be moved into the sea, that though the seas roar and foam, that though the mountains get molten by the sea, he says in verse 2, we will not fear. We will not fear. So in other words, the psalmist is saying, think of the worst possible doomsday scenario and somehow let that image send up a chill to your spine. Let it poke you some goosebumps. You may hyperventilate even, but then after that, say, even though that happens, we will not fear. We will not fear. And why not fear? Well, it's because of verse 1. He says, because God is our refuge and strength, He is a very present help in trouble. 
And so the psalmist asks the question, he asks us, why can we let go of fear? Why can we, how can we let go of fear? Well, it's perhaps by imagining our worst fears only for a moment and then telling ourselves always after that that God is an all-present help and is all-present and an ever-helpful in times of trouble. That God is our refuge, that God is our shelter, that God is our strength. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, there's a general opinion that the uh, background uh, inspiring the writing of this psalm was God's defense, was God's defense of Judah when the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, threatened to attack it. So at that time, Assyria was the feared uh, power. And no matter how much bribe King Hezekiah gave to the Assyrian king, it did not appease King Sennacherib. He was not backing down. On the contrary, he continued to mock God through his messenger. On the contrary, he continued to uh, increase the threats against Judah. So at that time, cities in, Judah's, in Judah were already captured. Was King Hezekiah afraid? You bet he was. He was very afraid. And yet, he clung on to the Lord, telling his people. Slide comes up in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. He says to his people, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. Why? For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And so King Hezekiah was scared, but yet he clung on to the Lord and he believed that the Lord is going to deliver them from Sennacherib's army. And God did. Because when you look at 2 Kings chapter 18, the angel of the Lord went out one evening, visited Sennacherib's army camp, and put to that, guess, guess how many people? put to that 185,000 soldiers in one evening. So the result was, it sent the king, the Assyrian king, King Sennacherib, back home. And he went back to Nineveh, which we learned when we studied uh, the, the series from Jonah, was the capital of Assyria. But King Sennacherib, although he went back to his city, he wasn't even safe in his own city. We were told that his sons eventually assassinated him while he was worshipping his worthless idol. So God is all-present. God is ever-helpful in times of trouble. Believe this, and you can get let go of your fear. Now, did you know that uh, Psalm 46 is also known as Martin Luther's psalm. See, when the emperor and the Catholic Church was against Luther for pointing out the Pope's heresy, Luther felt like the world was against him. Of course, he felt that way. If the emperor and the Catholic and the Pope was against you, it felt like the world was against you, against him who taught the Bible's justification by faith alone. And so it was said that uh, Luther would respond to his fear. What does he do? He would respond to his fear by bidding his friend, 
his friend Philip. And then he'll tell his friend, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let the devil do his worst. So in other words, he is finding refuge, comfort, consolation in the 46 Psalms and challenging the devil to, come on, show me what you've got. And thus, it inspired the hymn, of which we now came to know as A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's no wonder that Luther was able to face his opponents and say, what did he say? He said, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. So help me, God. So Psalm 46 presented as an encouraging message to Israel. It did too to Luther. And it must also to us today. To us who uh, face troubles, and I would say far lesser troubles than the worst catastrophic disaster that could wipe out the world. That we need to always be assured that God is all-present. He is ever helpful in times of any trouble that befalls us, His children. And that is why we must read together and hopefully memorize. Slide comes up. Next slide, please. Let's read together. One, two, three. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So imagine the worst possible scenario that you could face. Imagine. And then declare to yourself that God is your refuge, that God is your strength, that He is an ever-present help in trouble. And that, my friends, is going to allay your fears. So how else can one allay his fear in times of trouble? Well, it is, secondly, to look forward, to anticipate a day of serenity and peace when God establishes His immovable city. Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 4 of your Psalm 46. The psalmist says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Now, it is helpful to know that Jerusalem, the supposed city of God, actually did not have a river, but just a few streams. Now, the psalmist could well be referring to a figurative river that refreshes inhabitants of the city, uh, but more likely, he is drawing up an image, perhaps in reminiscence of Eden, where we were told in Genesis that a river flows out from Eden and waters the garden and from which four river heads proceed from. The psalmist could be reminiscing that beautiful river from Eden, or he could also be anticipating of the day when God establishes his habitation. And the clue is found when you read Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, 
where we are told. Let me read. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So there it is when Jesus returns, the city of God. And from the throne of God and of the Lamb on the throne flows a river of the water of life. And, not, and it's not dirty. We were told that it was, it's going to be bright as crystal. So you know what? When you and I think of the future, the future will somehow always threaten us with fear and anxiety, doesn't it? When you think of the future. So, for instance, you think, how is it going to pan out for Hong Kong? Any guesses? We don't know. It's very frightening. How is the trade war going to affect us? The trade war between U.S. and China. Or perhaps you think, are my kids, you know, when they grow up, going to have jobs, stable jobs? More so now that AI's artificial intelligence are taking their work. So remember Skynet, Terminator? That's how the world is going to end, according to that movie. Or you ask, will the next generation, will they still worship God? Will they still obey His will concerning marriage, concerning family? Because right now, it's very confusing. Thinking about the future will paralyze us with endless worries, friends. But not if you think of the final future. The final future when God establishes His kingdom in His Son. Not if you and I think of the city of God. The immovable city of God. So look at verse 5. The psalmist says that God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. You know, verse 5 has a deliberate contrast with verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. It's a deliberate contrast. If the strong, solid mountains can be moved into the sea, guess what? The city of God cannot be moved. So the word move there is the same Hebrew word in the original uh, text that the city of God cannot be moved. Why? Because God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And the psalmist continues and he says, God will help her where morning, when morning dawns. So what are the benefits of having God in our midst? It's laid out in verses 5 to 7. Firstly, verse 5, God is in our midst, so there will be help. There is help. Verse 6, God is in our midst, so enemies, they do not stand a chance. So how does help come to God's people? The psalmist says, God will help her when morning dawns. Do you know the, more, the phrase morning dawns is a very interesting phrase. Why is it interesting? Because it's likely an allusion to that morning when God helped His people from the Egyptian armies who chased them through the dried land across the Red Sea. So that's why we read Exodus a while ago. It's an exciting story. 
Exciting story that should not be only read in children's church. Even we, adults, should read it regularly. Why? Because Exodus, Exodus 14, tells us that throughout the night, while God's people were crossing the Red Sea, where was the Lord? The Lord was watching over them. And throughout the night, while the Lord was watching on them, the Lord gave them light. Ding! There was light shining upon them. While He sent darkness to the Egyptians who were behind them. So, I mean, as I look at this text, I could imagine this must have been a sight to see. Have you ever seen two different time zones in within one same time zone? That's it. Exodus 14. You have daytime, you have nighttime in the same time zone. But when morning dawns, we were told, same phrase in Psalm 46, when morning dawns, the sea which was held back like two huge walls on the left and on the right, the sea went back to its place. The sea swept away Pharaoh, his horsemen, his chariots. There were zero survivors on the Egyptian side. And so the psalmist says, God will help His people when morning dawns. It is an allusion to God's rescue of His people from the Egyptians. So the first benefit of having God in our midst is that there is always help from God. Second benefit of having God in our midst is that our enemies, verse 6, they do not stand a chance. I mean, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, we are told. But God utters His voice, and the earth melts. See, the word rage there is the same word that is used to describe how the waters roar and foam in verse 3. So that means that the enemies may rage like angry seas, like the angry sea roars and foams, but the immovable city of God would not even inch a bit. It would not even sink half an inch. On the contrary, it is the nations that rage against God that will move. Same word. On the contrary, it is the kingdoms that will totter. They will move and fall, the psalmist tells us. Because when the Lord utters His voice, the earth melts. God doesn't even, to need, doesn't even need to lift a finger. He speaks and it comes to pass. So you probably recall how people spoke once with one language. We are told in Genesis. And when they spoke in one language, what did they do? There was harmony. Huh? Yes, there was harmony. There was a there, there was a plot to depose God. So there was harmony in their midst, but there, it was harmonious for the purpose of sinning against God. And so when people spoke in one language, they decided to construct a, a tower to level up with God. But what did God do? God doesn't even lift a finger against the tower that the people were building. God simply says, let us confuse their language and when that happens, the construction halted. Why? Because the mason could not understand the foreman, right? Because the cook 
could not understand the worker. And so nations may rage and roar against God, but they will never, ever get an upper hand. The city of God is immovable. It won't be shaken. And the next verse, verse 7, reiterates it. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You know, friends, the phrase, the Lord of hosts, it's actually a phrase that is used to describe God as the undefeatable commander of the army. Lord of hosts, which some transla trans translations have it as the Lord of the armies. Since God is a commander, who can withstand him? Furthermore, this God is a fortress. It's a high, formidable stronghold. And so since we have the Lord of hosts as our God, who helps us in our trouble, and who will usher in the city of God in the finale, in the final future, guess what? We can let go of our fear and rest in God, our refuge. Let's read verses 4 to 7 together, shall we? Verse 4, slide please. Verse 4. Thank you. Verse 4. 1, 2, 3. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So, so far we have learned that, you know, sometimes imagining our worst fears for a moment, followed by a declaration that God is our refuge and strength, it helps us to let go of our fears. So does, so does picturing the final future. The final future when God ushers in the city of God, the immovable city, and forever refreshed by a river. So thinking of the worst possible horrors for a moment, and thinking long about the sure and final glorious future will help us let go of our fear. And yet, lastly, Recalling God's past victories and how He has subdued His enemies also helps us in addressing our fears. Look at the last part of Psalm 46, verse 8. It says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So why did we read Exodus this morning? Why? Because we wanted to behold the works of the Lord. We wanted to behold the desolations, the horrors that He has brought to those who opposed Him. 
You see, Egypt in her heyday was probably the strongest in terms of military might. The words horses, pharaoh, chariots, horsemen, they equate to, uh, equate to our modern day, I don't know, stealth jets, pilots, or even the best war equipment available. And yet, horses, chariots, and horsemen are no match to the Lord of hosts. Why? Because he breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots. Well, sometimes he just wobbles the wheels of the chariots and loosens the nuts of the chariots' wheels and so frustrates the plans of the wicked because the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Question, do you have enemies who breathe, who breathe fear into you? I'm sure you do. I remember several years ago, many, many years ago, I was driving on the streets of uh, Manila, and uh, a police officer came out of nowhere and flagged me down. I remember I didn't incur any traffic violation, and so I knew that the officer was up to something no good. He would come up to me, I expect, uh, with some rules that I've never heard before and try to extort me. So I said, oh, Lord, and fear gripped me. But as, as, as soon as I rolled down my window, now in those days, you roll down your window like this. So as, I soon, as soon as I rolled down my window, and as soon as the officer started to talk, out of nowhere, a drunk man approached us. Drunk man, out of nowhere. And he was drunk. He was upset that the police stopped me and told him, let him go, let him go. Of course, the police was, uh, the policeman was upset and he told uh, the drunk man off, but the, the drunk was persistent. And he challenged the police and said, what, are you going to issue me a ticket? Issue me a ticket. And so the police was so distracted, he turned to me and he said, drive carefully, sir. And he <laughs> let me go. He let me that is why to this day, I, st I still tell of how God rescued me from that snare by sending a drunk man on the way. So a few weeks back, I mentioned the goodness of listing down a thank list. I have one on my phone. And I mentioned that uh, it does me good. To date, I have 137 things to thank God for. And that list should increase. Why? Because every time I am feeling blue, every time a blot on the canvas overwhelms me, shifts my focus away from that, from the beauty of the canvas to that blot, I look at my thank list and it refocuses me on the many things that God has blessed me with. And so I walk away thankful and filled with joy. Likewise, we too must list down the works of the Lord in our personal lives. Those, what I call, salvific moments. He plucked you out of danger. He rescued you from evil. So that you can time and time again behold them. Look at them. And so allay your fears. 
declare verse 11, which says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Verse 11 being a refrain of verse 7. However, there is that famous verse many of us have memorized. It's which verse? It's verse 10. Verse 10, which says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now that verse alone seems to exhort us to do what? To quieten ourselves, to meditate even, or for some, it's to take a gap year and find a nice solitary place uh, uh, to ponder that God is God, that He has the last say. If I may, verse 10 is like a Zen verse. You know, Zen verse. However, if you would read verse 10 in the context of the entire psalm, you will discover that it actually stands out. It stands out like the bridge in a song because it's the only line or rather it's the only one of its kind did you notice from the entire verses of psalm 46 it's the only one of its kind and in this psalm it stands out because it is god's line this is the only time in psalm 46 where god speaks and god speaks abruptly it seems, and he speaks, it seems, to the ones who are raging, to the ones who are roaring and trying to move him away. And so he tells these, be still and know that I am God. The phrase be still, next slide comes up. The word be still in the original text denotes the idea of dropping one's hands. It's like, stop whatever you're doing, drop your hands. It denotes the idea of ceasing to stop or to let go. So the CSB translation of the Bible, the CSB version, translated, uh, I find it very apt. It says, stop your fighting and know that I am God. It is the idea of cease and desist. Cease and desist. So Charles Spurgeon comments in the Treasure of David, which is a, his commentary on, uh, on Psalms, and he says for this verse, he translates and he says, this is God saying, hold off your hands, you enemies. Sit down and wait in patience, you believers. Acknowledge that Jehovah is God, you who feel the terrors of His wrath. Adore Him and Him only, you who partake in the protection of His grace. So what Spurgeon does with this verse is that he takes this verse to address two groups of people. First group is that you who adore God. Second group is you who abhor God. The ones who adore God and the other ones who abhor God. I'd agree that this is probably a fair reading of this verse. To you who are troubled, the message is stop, cease from your panic, your flurries, or your striving. Let go of fear 
and let God help you and unfold His goodwill in your lives. But to you, but to you who oppose God, who roar and murmur against Him, be warned. Be warned. Because He is God. The buck stops with Him. He is above the nations. He is above the earth. So let go of your defiance. Submit to Him. Bow before Him. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the God who is the fortress. So the question that you need to ask when you read verse 10 is not when are you going to take your gap year next year to quieten yourself, but to ask, are you in opposition against God? Anybody in opposition against God? Outwardly, you probably are not because you are in church today. But inwardly, in your heart, you may silently oppose Him. Say you refuse to forgive a brother or sister, you are opposing God. You withhold grace and mercy, even after you've received grace and mercy from God, you are opposing Him. You underpay your helper. You shortchange her of her days off. You are in opposition against God. You upset or you are upset with God's people who provided you godly counsel. You are in opposition against God. Or you loathed the idea of, of, of God's will on the permanence of marriage. You scoff at it. You are in opposition against God. And so outwardly, you look like you love God, but inwardly, verse 10, is for you. And God says, stop it. Cease and desist. Be still and know that God is God. His rule and His ways are good, and they will forever stand. Let go and give in to God's rule. Behold His works. Behold the horrors that He can do. So let us read verses 8 to 11 together. Slide comes up. 1, 2, 3. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The authority to stop wars, the power to break bows, shatter spears, does not rest only in God. He also gave the same authority and power to His Son, Jesus. That's why we read in the Gospel, there was one time when Jesus, the Gospel of Mark, was crossing the river with His disciples to cross to the other side so that He may minister to a man who was demon-possessed. We read of how a squall came up 
And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swam. And what was Jesus doing? Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the stern. And the disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Jesus was on a mission to free a demon-possessed man from the clutches of evil. But the enemy did not want that to happen. The enemy used the winds and the waves to oppose the Son of God. Jesus rebuked the wind and said, Quiet, be still. He spoke, and the wind died down. Why? Because the plans of the Son of Man cannot be thwarted. He comes to bring salvation to the demon-possessed. He comes to bring salvation to us who receive Him. And so remove the fear of judgment and replace it with hope and joy that can only be found in Jesus. This Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord, is returning. And when He returns, He ushers in the new heaven and the new earth, and the city of God will be in our midst. But while we wait for that glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus, we can continue to live on and proclaim Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. So much so that nothing should sway us into fear, but that we be empowered to let go of our fear. Because the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let us pray. We give thanks that in you we find a refuge, we find a shelter, we find a fortress. In you we find an ever-present help. And so help us, O Lord, to surrender our fears whenever they beset us. Help us to run to you, our stronghold, our tower, our refuge, until we see you, until the city of God comes down to this world. And so be with us. We ask, O oh Lord, for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.